Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, you know, if you were going to expect revival to come, wouldn't that be the name of the message uh, that you would choose? The Bowl of Peanuts. Uh, Studying the action of faith. There's an action to faith and that we're going to discuss today, and that's the whole point of this message, how faith works, meaning how it actually functions. And this is, it's going to be very helpful, I think, as far as a tool for each of us in here. So it's sort of a story I'm going to tell, and so I'm going to introduce you to the players in our story. First, you need the slave. This is like a southern plantation uh, back in the 1860s or so, you know, Civil War era. And so we need the slave because that's part of the story, and that's you or me, you know, we just sort of function in that role. And so if you understand how Christianity works, you recognize that we were a slave unto sin. And so the slave, it's very important. This is us in the story. Now, of course, we get set free. That's the wonder of the gospel. But you sort of need to have the characters in place. King Cotton. Uh, Now, when you think of a a king, you know, with white hair, that's pretty accurate. Uh, And, you know, cotton is a white-like substance. Now, it's unfortunate because there's nothing wrong with cotton. I, I feel like I'm kicking cotton in this message. I have a good friend named Cotton. You know, that's actually their name. So I don't want to offend Cotton. Uh, There's nothing wrong with Cotton. However, in this particular story, I need to identify Cotton with something rather bad. Sorry about that. Sin in the flesh. Uh, And then we have the boll weevil. Uh, That's the effects of sin. I'll explain to you what a boll weevil is. Uh, And Mr. Peanut, uh, which is the Savior Jesus Christ, and that'll make more sense as we progress. And the bowl of peanuts, which we're going to call grace. And so there you get an understanding of what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about what God has made available in and through his cross. It's a bowl of peanuts. I know that sounds like a massive diminishment to what Christ actually did. However, in the context of what we're going to say today, I think you'll understand it's a very high statement. And But what that bowl is, is it's all that God has made available to us. And how we access that is going to be the point of this message. So the infamous bull weevil. That which is born within the bowls of the cotton plant and ultimately devours it. So we know cotton, you know, when we have our little bag in the, in the bathroom called cotton balls. Technically, the term would be bowls, uh, and, you know, if we're going to be official about it. And so when you go back to the bull weevil, it's basically that which finds its life and its origins. It's born in, in amidst this bowl. And that's where it's, it, it grew, and it grew strong, and it's uh, nearly destroyed our nation because of it. So there's our bull weevil. Isn't that rather disgusting? <laughs> the effects of sin. Uh, this is the ramifications of living a life that is not correct with God. And as a result, you end up with that all over your soul, and it devours it. King Cotton. King Cotton, its reign was between 1803 and 1937. You know what brought it low? The bull weevil. The bull weevil is what actually ended the reign of 
King Cotton. And what's interesting is our life parallels this. You see, we are under the reign of something. Something has supremacy over us. It's known as sin. And the flesh is empowered. It's a dimension of our body which is sensual. And uh, it's not meant to be in control. But when sin reigns, when self takes the throne in our life, it actually empowers the flesh. And the flesh now controls us. So though we want to live different, we can't. There's a dimension within us known as sin or the flesh that actually controls our body. And King Cotton... Uh, it was everything in the South. In, in the, on the Southern plantations, cotton ruled, and that's why it was known as King. It was actually known even then as King Cotton. It was the number one export in all of America. Europe craved it, and so they paid big bucks for this stuff. If you have a plot of ground, you're going to grow cotton. It's that simple. You do not want to waste any time on any of those lesser cro- crops or any lesser products because you're not going to make the money. Dollar for dollar, square inch for square inch, this is how you make your money. It's cotton. Cotton is king. Now, in a time of slavery, slavery grew and fostered on this. This was its, its, uh, how it was nurtured. King Cotton was its master. See, I know you want to say plantation owners were the master. However, King Cotton ruled the plantation owners, which then ruled the slaves. So King Cotton was really our problem. So here's just a little poem from back in the 1860s, just to get you in the mood. It's beautiful bowls and bales of rich value the master controls. Of mud stills he prates and would haughtily bring the world to acknowledge that cotton is king. Known as the gospel of slavery. Old King Cotton had a dark side. You know, King Cotton is white, right? And so it looks so pretty, so nice. But King Cotton had a dark side. It needed human slaves to be king. To be able to produce this, and ironically, even the cotton gin, when it came out, actually only increased the need for, need for slaves. I know it sounds funny, but it actually increased the p- potential of this amazing crop to be able to do more with it than even was possible before. And so for King Cotton to rule, it needs slaves to function. That's how it's going to get its profit margin. This whole system is built around slavery. So listen to this quote uh, in regards to the value of slavery back in the 1860s. And this is pretty incredible. I mean, we're right at the Civil War era here. And so the value of a slave is more than even cotton. The value of a slave is even more than the national banks held. It was everything. So in 1860, the value of the slaves was roughly three times greater than the total amount invested in U.S. banks, equal to about seven times the total value of all currency in circulation in the country, three times the value of the entire livestock population, 12 times the value of the entire U.S. cotton crop, and 48 times the total expenditure of the federal government that year. You don't want to lose your slaves. You see, if that much is resting on the slaves, doesn't it actually seem contradictory that President Lincoln would emancipate them? I mean, you're literally shooting your country in the foot to do it. This is literally how you, how you thrived. This is how you make it. The slaves were the key. Cotton is their great export. But the way that they came up with that cotton is the backs of the slaves. And by the way, I'm not just talking to you about U.S. history. I'm talking to you about us. The devil's business functions with us. And if he loses us, he doesn't have much of a business. The spirits need a body. And without a body, they can't function. They need something to animate. They need a fist to ball up and knock someone else in the nose. How are you going to punch someone in the nose if you don't have a fist to do it with? You see, 
The enemy needs the backs of slaves. And so as a result, we recognize the very same thing. King Cotton, well, King Sin. To keep Cotton king, King Cotton mustn't lose its workforce. Very important principle. So in 1861, a little boy named Georgie is born into the slavery of King Cotton in Diamond, Missouri. 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issues an executive order declaring that all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. Georgie is free from King Cotton. So an emancipation is declared. Ironically, in our life, did you know there's an emancipation proclamation? All of us are born into slavery to sin. And yet, even before we're born, there was an emancipation. We are literally set free. However, if a slave doesn't know that he's set free, do you know that he'll continue to heed his slave master? Out of fear. The slave master is a big bark, big whip too. It's like, I own you. And as a result, you try and get away and I'll show you. And so a slave out of fear will continue to serve a slave master even though if someone actually gave him the good news, you were emancipated. You literally have manumission papers. The governor has signed it. In our case, the king of kings has signed it with his own blood. It has legal authority in all realms, in all nations. We have been set free. You have to hear the good news. Little Georgie is set free. Now what's interesting is, I said he's free from King Cotton, not just from his slave owner. You know that his slave owner actually was a good man who raised him as his son afterwards? Isn't that an interesting thought? His, his problem wasn't his slave owner, his problem was Cotton. 1863, Georgie, though free, is two years old and a practical orphan. Moses and Susan Carver adopted Georgie and raised him as their own child, teaching him the basics of reading and writing. Some of you are already on to where I'm going with this story. 1863 to 1892, so we have a passage of time when little Georgie's growing up. Georgie grows up as a free man with a passion to help those under the rule and reign of King Cotton. You see, here's the interesting thing about Cotton. The slaves are set free, but what do they know how to do? They know how to grow cotton. So even though you're set free, and by the way, you're going to notice a huge parallel in our Christian life. You're set free from the power of sin, but what do you know how to do? Sin. It's the only thing you know how to do. You only know how to produce the fruit of the flesh, and if that's the only thing you've ever been trained how to do, you need a little Georgie that literally has been set in the course of his life to say, we cannot serve cotton anymore. That was Georgie's whole passion. This people group is still enslaved. Sure, they're set free on paper, but in practical life, they're still under the thumb of cotton. And so 1892 is a very critical year in American history because of this very concept. King Cotton and the freed slaves. When cotton is all you know, then cotton is what you continue to do even after you've been freed from its control. And there you have the state and the plight of the southern slaves. Oh, they're free. Don't get me wrong. However, they're still a slave. They're a slave to a crop that rules them. Isn't that strange that a crop could rule someone? They were afraid of ever using their ground for anything else. Because cotton is where the profit margin is. Cotton is what the demand is for. And if I grow anything else, I have no guarantees that it will sell. And so they were enslaved to cotton of all things. Isn't that the strangest thought? We're all happy for them. It's like, oh good, they're set free. How wonderful. The same thing is true with us. We come to Jesus Christ, but oftentimes we're still under the thumb of the flesh and we're still ruled by the flesh. We call it the cyclical pattern of defeat. 
where you think you're getting above ground. You're like, okay, I got this now. I'm whipping this sin. I'm no longer giving way to lust. I'm no longer giving way to fear and anxiety. I'm no longer doing this or this or this. And then you go under the tire once again. And it just goes around like this. You start to feel like you're overcoming it, and then you go down again. You see, this is the same thing with the slaves. Every year when they get to the crop time and they need to figure out what they're going to plant, they all sort of look at each other and go, what else are we supposed to do? This is the only thing we know. If that's all you know, what else are you going to plant? And you at least have a guaranteed outcome. The outcome isn't very impressive because you're a slave to it, but at least it's predictable. King cotton has a blind spot, and it's a pretty big one, by the way, for those of you that are farmers. It depletes the soil. I guess, you know, from what I understand, there's certain crops that actually give something to the soil, and there's certain ones that just suck it out. Cotton is a depleter. It's one that ravages the soil. It takes all the nutrients out of it and doesn't seem to leave anything behind. So king cotton is a blind spot. It depletes the soil. It takes away, constantly robbing from the nutrients, disabling the ground from actually producing anything good. So what happens year after year? If you've been working that soil and and planting cotton, you know what happens? Now even your cotton isn't growing very well. You see, you're losing any strength that you have, and it's constantly wearing away. And what is the wages of sin? It's death. It's defeated constantly. is taking more from you, and the end result is death. Now, what also happens at this exact time in history, in the early 1890s, is we have the introduction of the bull weevil. The bull weevil, if it wasn't bad enough, because the soil is so depleted that now, even in the South, you're having to work extra hard to get a little out. It's getting harder and harder every year. The slaves are more and more entombed in this business of cotton growing, and yet they have no solutions for it. They have no way out, and it's getting worse every year, but then what piles on top of it? The bull weevil? King Cotton has a weevil. In 1892, the bull weevil arrives on southern plantations, completely undermining the cotton industry over the next 30 years. This will literally devastate cotton over the next 30 years. And so literally the end is coming. The wages of sin ultimately is a complete and utter abolishment. It's it's death. It ultimately dies. Georgie, the man with the plan. His great idea. Hey, uh, guys, try the peanut. I mean, it's really almost a funny story because there's something about the word peanut. I mean, we could call it a goober, uh, which would even be more hilarious. But there's something about a peanut that's just sort of a funny word. Isn't that interesting? Like Gary Larson used to always, he was the one that did the far side. He considered the cow the most intrinsically hilarious creature. And so he would always put cows in his cartoons. And that's sort of the way a peanut is. I mean, if you're going to pick one of the funniest foods, what would you pick? A peanut. And so it's just sort of ironic that there's something about a peanut that just looks uh, unintellectual. It doesn't have the stuff. It doesn't have the bling, the cachet value. It's like a peanut. Now, what's interesting is George Washington Carver, a black man who was born into slavery but set free by that Emancipation Proclamation, is very different in his thinking than all the other blacks that were set free. He's been laboring for all these years, and he realizes what the problem is with his people. They're subservient to something still, and it's cotton. And so what does he begin to labor to find? A solution for his people, that they would be truly set free. How in the world can they be free? And so here was his great solution, the peanut. And they all looked at him like, what? The, 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 the what? Peanut, the peanut 
Well, let's see, I think I have it even right here. The peanut. <laughs> the, the peanut. A plant that enriches the soil sticks in nutrients instead of stealing them. See, at first it wasn't don't grow cotton. It was you need to rotate in something else. And a peanut, if you do it every other year, and you grow peanuts, you're going to find that the peanut actually sticks nutrients in the soil. So where cotton's pulling it out, the peanut is going to stick it back in. So just for that reason, it would be beneficial. It's a great source of protein. Doesn't it sound like your mom? (laughs) It works as food for people and as food for animals. You see, George Washington Carver's thinking this through from every angle. What's cotton doing? Well, the peanut can solve that. The peanut is actually the ultimate idea. And this man named George Washington Carver suggests it, not to just anyone, but to his people, to his people that are still under the thumb of slavery. They don't know a way out. And every year it's getting worse and worse and worse. Doesn't that sound like our lives? It's like, God, is there a solution? Well, there's a peanut. But there was a problem. And this is a pretty big problem, I have to admit. No one knew what a peanut even was, let alone how to grow one. <laughs> what is, what's a peanut? They didn't even know what a peanut was. And there's a reason for that. It's not because they were just ignorant. That's, that's actually not the reason they didn't know what a peanut was. No one in America knew what a peanut was. In 1896, the peanut wasn't even recognized as a crop in the United States. It wasn't even recognized as something you could grow in the United States. So when George Washington Carver suggests the peanut, he's suggesting something completely, altogether otherworldly. It's like, what are you talking about? A peanut. Oh, and yet another problem, and I have to admit, this is a pretty big problem too. What to do with these piles and piles of unused peanuts? When you grow peanuts, they grow. And you have a ton of them. Big piles of them. And they didn't know what to do with them. So I can only eat so many. No one else out there wants my peanuts because they don't know what they are either. Do you see that? My, uh, my horse likes them. I have to admit this is really working nice for my horse. But I need to make a living. And the way you make a living as a farmer is you have a demand for your crop. And so therefore they had piles and piles of peanuts. And it's like, great idea. Now I have nutrient-rich soil for next year. Wonderful, but I need to survive this year. That's an interesting quagmire to be in. And yet George Washington Carver had a solution. I think this is, uh, for those of you that have studied George Washington Carver, this is our favorite part of the story. It's not the peanut, it's this part. 1896, Georgie, now all grown up and known as George Washington Carver, sets out to find the true power of the peanut. So he knows that this thing, this peanut, has the power, has the potential to change the South and to set a peanut. Isn't that funny that a peanut could set a people free? And that's exactly what happens. But listen to this. 1896 is one of my favorite moments in George Washington Carver's life. George Washington Carver asks a simple question. Lord, what is your purpose for the peanut? That was what he said. He laid the peanut before God. He said, God, you created this. We have need. I need to know how, why, and for what purpose you created this. Show me. This man an inventor, a botanist, literally sets his life in prayer before God and listens. God, you're the one that knows about the peanut. Tell me why you made it. And God answers that question. Have you ever set a peanut before God and asked him a question like that? Or anything? Can you imagine a rhubarb? 
God, why did you make this? You see, there's a time of desperation. Now, the thing I want you to begin to look for in this is to realize that something has been supplied. You know that that peanut was invented by God long ago. And yet, for such a time as this, God is revealing it unto a people. You see, there is something that was done before today that is available to you. There's a solution for your problem. I don't know how many of you have ever come to the cross and said, God, why did you die on that cross? For what purpose? For what purpose was Jesus here on this earth? I need to know. Because the answer is actually fairly similar. The answer from heaven, this is profound. Over 300 inventions using the peanut came forth. Over 300 inventions. By the way, if I were to ask you an invention of peanuts, most of you would be able to think of one. Peanut butter. (laughs) Over 300 inventions using the peanuts, from peanut milk to peanut paper, even to peanut soap. 105 tasty food recipes using peanuts, from peanut butter, there we go, to pancake flour, to peanut brittle, to instant coffee, to mayonnaise, to chicken substitute. There was a chicken substitute. There was also a veal and a lamb and a duck substitute. To peanut sausage, to butterscotch, to cheese pimento, to sweet pickle. Sweet pickle? And about 100 products specifically designed to help around the house and farm, including such things as cosmetics, dyes, paints, plastics, gasoline, and nitroglycerin. Out of a peanut! That is amazing! So when the slaves say, I have piles and piles of peanuts, what does he say? And you have piles and piles of things that you can turn that peanut into and sell. Isn't that an amazing thing? That this one product, this one uh, item could actually be transformed into that which could set a people free. The bait of cotton versus the brilliance of peanuts. Why would you go with cotton when you have the opportunity of peanuts? Well, why do most of us go with cotton? It's what's familiar. It's what we know. It's at least predictable. We don't know exactly how much crop we're going to get out of it, but we know we'll get a crop. And then what does someone tell us? But it's depleting your soil. It's killing you. What about the boll weevil? You know what the boll weevil has no hold on the peanut? Has no hold on it. The peanut mocks the boll weevil. It shrugs its shoulders and laughs. It doesn't care about the boll weevil. Cotton is vulnerable to the boll weevil. And cotton alone. However, cotton is familiar. It's the way we usually go when it comes to planting season. And yet, God's beckoning us to something different. You won't just start planting something different in your life. Turning in a different way. When you face those planting moments where you need to invest your life, your energies. What are you going to do this year? Let's go peanuts. You see... Peanuts, there's a brilliance behind it. It really is. It's one of the most extraordinary things in all of history, as far as I'm concerned, is the story of the peanut. The bait of self-effort versus the brilliance of God effort. You see, this is what it comes down to for us. It's not about cotton and peanuts. It's about two different ways of approaching life. One is the way you've always done it. We can call it self-effort. It's typically known in the Bible as living after the flesh, walking in the flesh, or self-righteousness. It's your attempt to get protein power out of cotton. 
You're trying to get something that, new, that gives nourishment to your soil. That somehow will give you the protein strength to build muscular Christianity out of something that leads to death and has a bull weevil. However, if you forsake that way of doing things, you give up your way and you turn into God's way. It's totally strange and foreign. I recognize that. But it's God's ability to work on your behalf. God has done something for you. Are you willing to allow his brilliance to show forth? The biblical idea of grace. And so the idea of God effort on our behalf is what the Bible understands as grace. A lot of us have a misconception of grace to be a hug of God. Like we're miserable, we're in our defeated state in the cyclical pattern of defeat and God just comes up and hugs us. I'm not saying he doesn't. However, he gives us a bear hug in our muddened state and lifts us out of the mud, and that's grace. And in our mud cake state, lifted out of the mud, then he drenches us with his living water and cleanses us from all sin. Then he sets our feet upon a rock and makes us strong. Then he sticks his spirit inside of us and empowers this body and this life to live as it ought. That's grace. It's God effort at changing a life. It's God's ability to transform a human. It's not our ability to try and fix ourselves in the mud. Most of us are used to growing cotton. And our soil is more and more depleted year after year. And the bull weevil is having its way with us. And it's a slow deterioration in death. And we're in misery. Though we mean well, we're still trying to bear fruit for the king. We just need to make sure we know which king to serve. Let's not serve the wrong king. King Cotton is going to exact every bit out of us. King Jesus is the one we want to serve. So the biblical idea of grace. Look at Paul as he talks about grace. This is the God effort. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So how was Paul what he was? By the grace of God. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. So Paul is saying that because of this grace that is given him, he labored. It's an interesting concept because a lot of us are afraid of laboring in the the Christian life. It's like, well, that's works. Paul says, I labored, and I labored more abundantly than they all. Listen to this line. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see, God is actually wanting to do the work for us. He's wanting to actually do that which we can't do. And he actually has done it in the past, but he ever lives to still do that work for us. It's known as grace. The Christian life functions off of grace, not off of self-effort, but off of us yielding our life unto God to allow him to do his work in and through us. I used the illustration earlier this semester of the work glove. Remember the work glove? It's this nice calfskin leather. And you just take a work glove without a hand in it and just drop it. What you're going to find is the law of gravity will bring it right down to the ground. It'll just sort of flop there on the ground. And you could challenge the work glove and go, come on, buddy. Come on, work glove. Do something impressive. You see, that work glove was actually designed to do amazing things. It can do extraordinary things, but not by itself. You see, that work glove and its own calfskin power cannot produce anything that would showcase the work of the hand. The hand, the almighty hand of God, can do all sorts of amazing things. But the work glove was supposed to reveal it. The work glove is supposed to give up its life and slide right on top of that hand. And now whenever the hand moves, what do you see the work glove do? Exactly as the hand intends. You see, that's how Christianity works. 
That's grace. That hand is the grace of God indwelling us, enabling us. It's God effort. The work glove's job is to simply trust that God knows how to do it and to allow him to do it in and through us. So here's the biblical idea of grace, peanut style. But because of the bowl of peanuts, I am what I am. And his power-packed protein peanuts, which he made available to me on the coffee table, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the peanut protein which was working in me. In other words, and this is going to come from an illustration I gave to my kids a couple days ago. My kids were struggling with some uh, behavior issues. Some nitpicking, some grumbling, some complaining. There were some tattling, you know, just the common stuff. And so we were talking about the fact that, you know, I said, what's your position, guys? And they said, in Jesus. And that's, that's how they said it. And so they're in, they're in Christ. And I said, well, you know, you guys have access. You guys have access to everything you need to no longer behave that way. And so I described it. I said, imagine a big bowl of peanuts in the middle of the table. Uh, and, you know, if it was sitting in there and you knew that everything you needed, all the nutrients you needed to change you, to empower you with all the protein strength that you would need to be able to behave properly was in that bowl. What would you do? Just walk by the bowl and wave? You'd dig your hand in there. Would you grab one? If you knew that one would give you, you know, such and such amount of strength, but two would give you double that, how many would you grab? You'd start carrying it away, wouldn't you? You'd stick it in your pockets. This would be your life. In fact, you'd live right by the bowl. This is where the strength is. So welcome to the bowl of peanuts. The biblical idea of grace. I'm just going to read you another scripture about grace. Wherefore, we receive in a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. How are we to serve God acceptably? By grace. How is the calfskin glove to showcase the glory of God, the movements of God? By grace, by the hand dwelling in it. Or, in this case, peanut style. Wherefore, we receiving a bowl of peanuts which cannot be moved from the coffee table. Let's take, it, let's take and eat these power-packed, protein-rich peanuts whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Introducing the bottomless bowl of peanuts. Now, this is what I love about this illustration. Is it's one of those bowls, it's like a God bowl. Okay, now, a lot of us would think, now, do I need to like, get a piece of land and harvest peanuts? Actually, the amazing thing about this is our old life was all about harvesting crop. When in the new life, it's about God's work to provide us the grace He's actually given us the substance. We don't need to go out and try and harvest peanuts. He's given us peanuts. He's harvested them. It's his work on the cross that has given us a huge bowl of the stuff. So what's amazing is we have piles and piles, and get this, bottomless piles. Now, the first thing we could say back to like George Washington Carver is like, what am I supposed to do with all these peanuts? It's a good question. So most of us, they don't have value. We don't understand that the grace of God actually is given to us to transform our lives. It's just a peanut. It's not even that attractive on the outside. People make fun of it and call them goobers all the time. So we're looking at this big bowl going, eh, it doesn't make that much of a difference in my life. You don't know the power of those peanuts. You don't know truly how this will change your life. So, so many of them that it would be impossible to count them. That's how, much, uh, how many peanuts we have. So I have some possible titles for this next section. I'm going to give you some options. Uh, The functionality of faith. The work of believing. How does faith work? Or here's a good one. 
How does one escape the wicked effects of the boll weevil and access the protein-rich benefits of the peanut life? Anyone, you can, you can choose your title. It's sort of like choose your own adventure, choose your own sermon. Five modern options for the peanut harvesting. Note, the bowl of peanuts, this is just a note. We have all sorts of ways that in Christianity today, we're going about trying to get our peanuts. Note, the bowl of peanuts is filled to the brim and available to all who would simply take them. Okay, so that's just a piece of information you all need to know as we start this, as we look at some of the other options for gaining peanuts. Go out and try planting peanuts yourself. Okay, that's one way. It's like, yeah, that's, that's what we should do. Go in and stare from across the room at the renowned peanut bowl, and maybe proximity will equate to protein impartation. <laughs> Sing songs of peanut-saving grandeur. Memorize the recipe for making peanut butter. Join a peanut butter quiz team and earn a ribbon for your vast knowledge. Sniff the bowl, and maybe the distinct peanut aroma will transfer the peanut's incredible virtue and power into your digestive system. See, all of those are ridiculous ways. There's a simple way of gaining the stuff of a, of a peanut in your life. And that is, you take this hand and you stick it in the bowl and you grab with it. You grab a hold of a whole wad of peanuts and now what do you do? You have to shell these things. You ever notice there's a little work in the kingdom of heaven? There is. Now, you didn't have to even harvest the peanuts. They're there, but you still need to work. You ever heard of obedience? You ever heard of prayer? You ever heard of literally choosing to rejoice? This is not easy. It's like shelling a peanut. Then what do you find inside? Everything you need. Everything you need for life and godliness is just sort of sitting there. And what do you do with it? You throw it in your mouth and you chew it. And then you have to deliberately choose to swallow it because you could stick something in your mouth and chew it and still spit it back out. You have to still choose to swallow it. And then even when it gets into your stomach, you have to choose to agree with it. And then as you digest this protein-rich peanut, did you know that the strength of it is imparted to your life? You see, it's not just knowing that there's a peanut bowl. See, a lot of us, when it comes to the idea of faith, have this idea that I believe there's a peanut bowl, and as a result, we're dying of the bowl weevil. The whole while, we know that there's a peanut bowl. What actually is saving faith? Not faith, saving faith. If you were dying of hunger and the peanut bowl was right there, what would saving faith be? Not just knowing that that bowl is there, but that bowl belongs to you, and you have access to that bowl. And when you reach your hand in, it will not be slapped. And that when you grab a hold of those peanuts and shell them and you stick that peanut power into your mouth and you chew it and digest it, that that is for you. And it will, in fact, and indeed, transform your health. Uh-huh. Hunger solved. Saving faith is different than having a rational understanding of something from the outside. I remember a scientist saying it this way. He had a chair in front of him, and he puts his hand in the back of the chair, and he says, you see, I know that this chair can hold me up, but that's not believing. Believing is the action, if I truly believe that this, hair, this chair can hold me up, because there's other people that might think it's a faulty chair, and it will fall the moment you sit on it. I believe it was built properly. So I believe that I could stick my entire weight down upon it and sit, and it will hold me up. And so believing isn't just knowing that and just making a declaration about it. It's sitting in it. It's actually going and sitting in that chair and proving that it holds you up. That's the difference between a faith and a saving faith. So how does one go from cotton mouth to peanut breath? <laughs> cotton mouth. So we got a big, chunky character here. And you'll notice it's not a very attractive drawing. 
but you see some eyes and you see a mouth. Okay, I didn't put a lot of other detail into this guy. But where, where are his eyes looking? His eyes are looking at the cotton. Okay, this is where he's always gotten his life supply. And his strength has always come from cotton. And as a result, where is he sticking? He's sticking in his mouth. He has cotton mouth. Okay, this is how cotton mouth works. Now, what we would understand this of is ignorant unbelief. You see, this poor guy has never been told about the peanut. See, the peanut's there, but he's never been told about it. How will they know unless they hear? So many of us have lived seasons of our life in ignorant unbelief. Why do we have cotton mouth? Because no one ever told us about peanut breath. Now, uh, number two, we're going to call this um, still cotton mouth. You see, this is stunted, non-working, unrepentant belief. You know something to be true. You've been told about something, and you know that peanuts exist. So we'll call it, this is a strange title for it, but knowledgeable unbelief. It's actually, you have knowledge about peanuts, but you are functionally an unbeliever. Why? Because what's going into your mouth still? Cotton. You're still turning to the cotton for satisfaction. You're still turning to your cotton, and that's where you put your trust. Cotton can save me. And yet the whole while, you're esteeming these peanuts going, oh, yeah, they're pretty, a pretty big, impressive pile over there. You know about them, and you act like to everyone around you that, oh, yeah, peanuts. Yeah, I have peanuts in my life. You're not eating them. Practically and functionally, you are an unbeliever. You do not have saving faith because what's the good about having peanuts in your life if you're eating cotton? doesn't even make sense. So let's get to number three. Ah, peanut breath. Look how thin that guy got. He's been doing some exercise and he got healthy really quick. This is called repenting and believing. You see, if the peanuts are still over there, then you still need to give up your cotton. Unless you turn from your cotton, you see, if you have one field, you can't just plant it with cotton and then call it peanuts. That's how many of us Christians function. We plant cotton and then pray over it that it would be peanuts. Instead of recognizing that we must repent of our cotton planting, repent of our relationship to cotton, our dependency upon cotton, we must forsake it and move over to the peanuts. We must become peanut lovers. And so this is called true Christianity, giving up on the cotton and turning to the peanuts. Now your eyes are upon the peanuts and what goes inside? But peanuts. The confusion over works. We have a lot of confusion over this idea of works-based Christianity. A lot of us are paranoid about it. We don't want to be legalists. We don't want to work because our salvation is done in his work on the cross, not in our work, uh, lest any of us should boast. And so let's look at some of the scriptures about this. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, this is just a great classic, right down the middle, understanding of how we are saved as Christians. Okay, now look at this. Now we go to James, which Martin Luther really struggled with the book of James because of this exact concept. He really caught a hold of the idea that we are saved not by works, but by grace. So then what, what is this in James? What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And of course, what would we say? Yes, faith sure could. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Being alone, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. 
But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Seeth thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Oh, thanks a lot, James. Now we're thoroughly confused. So which one is it? Are we saved by works or are we saved just by faith? How in the world is this supposed to work? And that's why we're given this message. You see, what we don't see in the book of James when it's talking is that compared to what we're seeing in Ephesians is we have two different works. There's cotton farming and there's peanut bowl grabbing. Two different works, two very different ends as a result. So the work of the law is what it's known as in the scripture. Leaning on Adam's ability and efforts to save. Leaning on the first life. Digging in our own pockets and saying, I can do this for you, God. I can grow it out of this soil. I can produce a fruit that will please you. And what comes out? Cotton. You see, we can only produce that which deteriorates and grabs from the soil and that which is vulnerable to the bull weevil. We cannot produce peanuts in our own strength. And so this is one work. And when, when, it, when it says that it's not by works, it's not by this sort of work. It's not by flesh. So this is the concept of going into the fields and trying to get peanut protein out of cotton farming. That work cannot save you. That is the work that God goes out of his way to say, nah, no, not by works, lest any man should boast. So, but you know, there's another work. It's actually called that in scripture too. It's the work of faith. Isn't that interesting that faith works? See, faith is not passive. Faith is active. So, What the work of faith is, is leaning on Jesus' ability and efforts to save, a.k.a. also known as the Spirit. So what is the work of faith? It's going to the peanut bowl, reaching in, and gripping peanuts, cracking them open, sticking tasty, protein-rich peanuts into your mouth, chewing, swallowing, and digesting this saving goodness. You see, both are works. One, God says in, in the book of James, hey, you tell me you believe in the peanut bowl, show it by your works. Grab them eat them. If you don't eat them, your faith is dead. It doesn't save you because you don't have the real stuff inside of you. And we would all agree. But then the other side, if someone's hoeing the ground out there trying to work and planting cotton and then praying over it that it would be uh, protein-rich peanuts, we would say that's not the work that's going to save you. God has already given you a peanut bowl. You're trying to make your own peanuts and you never will be able to. Go into the living room called Christ. Enter into the house and the peanut bowl sitting on the coffee table and it's endless. As much as you could desire is available to you. How ridiculous would it be to do that sort of work when you have the right sort of work to do? Saving faith. Saving faith is the sort of faith that doesn't just know it in the mind, but acts upon it in agreement. If you believe that chair can hold you up, prove it. Believe it. How does faith work? So let's imagine that faith is uh, a worker, a laborer down at the docks. And so faith goes out and uh, clocks in when it shows up in the morning. See, faith is going to work. So that's the question. How does faith work? So if faith is working, how's faith working? When faith goes to work, how does it function? You know what it does? It believes. That's how faith works. I know that sounds strange. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. Oh, I want to know the answer to this one. That you believe on him who he has sent. 
That's how you work. You believe. Now, many of us don't understand the correlation between the word faith and the word believe. And I understand why, but in the Greek, they're the same concept, okay? And they're the same Greek root. But in our English, we have faith, which is a very different sort of word than believe. And so as a result, we don't see the link between the two. Faith and believe, what's the difference? Faith is the noun, pistis. We'd call it the operation. So the overall operation of believing. So if you're going to work and you're believing all day long, what are we going to call it? Faith. You see, that's what faith is. It's a whole bunch of believing. It's the operation. It's the noun. Believe is the verb, pastuyo. It's the action. So when, you're do, when you are doing faith, when you are uh, a faithful person, you are believing all day long. That's what you do. So what did you do at work today? I believed all day long. And so that's how a Christian functions. We are called believers. We are the ones that actually stick our hand into the bowl and grab the peanuts. We don't just esteem the scent or the aroma of peanuts from across the room and sing songs and wave at the bowl. We actually engage with that bowl. That bowl has the life substance that we know we need. And we prove that we believe that that has the life-giving substance because we actually reach in and grab it. And we digest it. That's the saving faith. To have pistis, faith, and not pastuyo, and not do the action of faith, is ridiculous. And that's what James is saying. To say that you have faith, but then not pastuyo, to not actually do the work of faith, that's ridiculousness. It doesn't even make sense. If your whole job description is to believe, and so you go to work and just hang out all day, and you say, are you actually, I thought you did the work of faith. Well, I do. Well, how come you're not doing it? You're supposed to be believing. See, it doesn't even make sense. It's like having eyes and not opening them to see. It's like having a tongue, but not using it to speak. It's like having ears, but not listening with them. It's like having money, but not using it to pay your bills. It's like having a big bowl of peanuts in front of you and not sticking your hand in the bowl, grabbing them, cracking them open, and sticking their protein-rich power in your mouth and chewing. You see, what, if you knew and if you believed that that was the life that you needed and everything has been made available to you, it's all there. The whole bowl is yours. If you really did believe it, what would you do about it? Faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Now, let me give you some variations of that. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. So you've been given an understanding of the peanuts. In this case, the peanut bowl. It's like I'm telling you, hey, everything you need for life and godliness has been made available to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. His shed blood is sufficient for you. It's efficacious is one of the terms in Scripture. In other words, it's able to accomplish on your behalf every single thing that you need to have accomplished so that you could please God. Everything is available to you. It's extraordinary. It's called good news. It's not just the penalty of sin that has been dealt with. It is the problem, the control that King Cotton has had over your life. You no longer fear bull weevils. You no longer fear lust and anxiety and fear. Why? They can't They can't find any life. They have no grip. They can't kindle on the peanut. You've been set free in Jesus Christ and his shed blood. The bull weevil has no grip. It isn't fostered. It isn't given life in that second birth. It's called the life of the spirit. It's an enmity with that whole first life. And the bull weevil has no place there. So why would you fear bull weevils if you're raising peanuts? It's a good question. 
You see, you've been terrified waking up in the middle of the night going, oh, bull weevil. You have dreams of bull weevils. And now suddenly you come to Jesus Christ. There's no more concern about bull weevils. Bull weevils have no hold over you. Are they out there? Oh, yeah. They're out there all over the place. Bull weevils all over the south. They're disgusting, too. However, you're a peanut farmer. Technically, you're the recipient. You're like the child of the peanut farmer. Mr. Peanut is Jesus Christ. He's the one that came up with the solution. He supplied it to us, and he's the one in our living room of, the, of our home. We have a big bowl, and it's bottomless. There's so many peanuts, we don't know what to do with So we're going out and handing peanuts to everyone we know. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. So it's a basic principle of Scripture. So I'm going to stick in the concept of faith and believing here. Pistis and pastuyo. For everyone to whom pistis is given, from him pastuyo will be required. If, if you've been given the bowl of peanuts, if you've been given the understanding, if you've been given the idea that this is sufficient for you, then what's required? Believing. Well, of course. For everyone to whom eyes are given, from him seen will be required. Could you imagine this person saying, yeah, I never saw anything. It's required of you. You've been given something. You've been given an organ to be able to discern and to see. Use them. The same is true with your spiritual life. You've been given a gift of grace. And you've been awakened. And you can see something. You can see the bowl of peanuts. All sorts of people all over the world don't know about that bowl of peanuts. And you do. So what's, what are you required of? You're required to do something about it. To respond to that bowl. For everyone to whom a bowl of peanuts is given, from him grabbing peanuts, cracking open peanuts, eating peanuts, and digesting peanut power, will be required. <laughs> to believe. The art of Christian doing. You know that we as Christians are supposed to do something. And that's something that we're supposed to do is not save China. It's not to head off to Afghanistan. It's not to go down the street and minister to the homeless, even though we do do those things. Those are the outflow of something far greater. Our job, in a very simple sense, is to believe. It's to do the work of a believer. So when you look at Romans 6, you're going to see how believing works. A lot of us in our minds... Think of believing as merely mental ascent. It's like, I know there's a bowl of peanuts there. Yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He supplied everything I need for life and godliness. Sure, that's, that's wonderful. I'm a new creature in Christ. Great. However, we never reach into the bowl and grab it. So Paul in Romans 6 actually goes through five dimensions to what we could call believing, the act of doing. So if you really are believing, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like this. Knowing, reckoning, presenting, exerting, and obeying. So let's go through each one. The knowing. The knowing to mentally understand, to get the information that there is a bowl of peanuts. You know, that's actually important. A lot of people try and downplay that too. It's like, oh, what good is that going to do to know there's a bowl of peanuts if you don't do something about it? Well, if you don't know there is a bowl of peanuts, you won't do anything about it. So knowing is a huge part of how the gospel works and engages with our life. You better know what Jesus Christ has done. And so the knowing. And so here we are in Romans 6. Know you not... That so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into his death, and some of us in here could go, no, I didn't know that. That's right, that's why we need to know it. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Did you know that? You see, you must know these things to take advantage of them. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. So the whole concept of Romans 6 is, do you know your position? By the way, what is your position? So if death no longer has dominion over him, if he can die no more and you're in him, guess what? There's no more death for you either. 
You see, this is called eternal life. When you understand, when you know, you reason from that position. However, knowing is not the fullness of believing. So know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So here's, here's our peanut way of saying it. Know you not that when you came to Christ, you became part of the family of Christ? Know you not that all those that are in the house have access to the bowl of peanuts on the coffee table in the middle of the house? Know you not that as many as take from the bowl of peanuts that they receive the protein power of the peanuts? Know you not that the bowl of peanuts has been set there in the center of your living room just for you? Look closely, your name is written on the bowl. Know you not that he that doesn't reach for peanuts does not receive the benefits of the peanuts? That last line is a kicker. It's an important one. Don't you know that if you don't have the work of believing that you will not receive the benefits of those peanuts? You must actually do the labor or do the work of believing. You must know it, but then if you don't do something about it, well, guess what? You're not going to get that protein-rich peanut power inside of you. The reckoning. Reckoning is a term that we talk about quite a bit uh, during our basic training at Ellerslie. But it's an accounting term. And it's basically someone who is going to accredit something to, say you're the accountant, you don't see the numbers, but someone tells you. It's like, yeah, I I wired $1,000 into your account. So then you, as the accountant, you reckon it. Yeah, I have $1,000 then in my account. You don't have to see it. You believe it because the one that told you is trustworthy. His word is sufficient for you. And so when God's word speaks to us, what do we do? We credit it to our account. Hey, God said it. He can't lie. And so we write checks off of that. Well, not many of you are going to write checks off of money that you don't know is there. That's the equivalent of sitting in the chair and trusting that it's built properly and can hold you up. You prove that you trust God by reckoning it. God says, do you believe it? God, I'd really like to see the $1,000, like actually go into the bank and have them show me the gold in my account. And God says, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Blessed are you when you believe God, take him at his word and reckon it into your account. I have the money in my account. That's what Paul says. He says, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're dead to King Cotton. King Cotton, the bull weevil, have no more power over you. Reckon it. Because now you're coming under a new family, the peanut farmer. You see, you are set free and emancipated. You must reckon this. Though your slave master will be gruff and he'll yell at you and he'll tell you the exact opposite, you must reckon it to your account that you are dead indeed unto sin. And you actually are alive. It's strange because you're waiting for a feeling. I need to feel dead. I need to feel alive. And God says, this isn't a feeling. Any more than you need to feel the $1,000 in your account. You reckon it. Feelings come, by the way. The joy of salvation comes when you reckon. Faith is implicitly leans, it implicitly leans on fact. And fact is God's word. God has said it, he cannot lie. If he has said it and he cannot lie, I believe it. So here's our version of it today for the peanut bowl version. Reckon yourself also a member of the peanut farmer's family, a recipient of the peanut power, no longer under the control of King Cotton, and that there is therefore no hindrance and no hand slapping when you boldly approach the bowl of grace. The bull's answer is yes and amen to those who are inside the house and those that reach out towards it in faith. If you belong to Christ, if you have turned unto Christ, that means you are in him. If you have even called upon him, get this, 
If you even long to be in Christ, that's the surest sign that the door is unlocked. Just enter in by faith and put your confidence in him. I was reading the story of Bruce Olson. Remember the book Bruchko, for any of you that have read it? And he was trying to articulate faith to the Motolone Indians uh, down in Colombia. He's like, how do I say this to them? Which, it, I, all his thoughts were North American. He couldn't figure out how to articulate this. All of them hang in, in, in uh, hammocks. And so in their common house, they all attach themselves to the rafters, and they hang there like 20 feet in the air. That's how they sleep. And so the, the picture was you take your hammock uh, ropes and you tie them into Jesus. Full confidence. He will hold you. They understood that. And to the Motolona, even to this day, that's the idea of faith. It's tying into Jesus, tying your hammock into Jesus. Well, that's a pretty good illustration. I think we could use that illustration. So the bull's answer is yes and amen to those who are inside the house. So the idea is if you have tied your hammock strings into Jesus, guess what? You're in his house. You're trusting him. Therefore, in Scripture it says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. If you are in him, if you are in Christ, in the house, then the answer is yes and amen. When you reach out, he's not going to slap them. Say, hey, who are you to ask? He says, boldly come unto the bowl of grace. Boldly. Come on. You're in the house. Come here. This is for you. It's provision. He saw your need ahead of time. He knew the bowl weevil was coming to devour you. And he has made supply for you. In the perfect time, in the perfect way, it's there. Take it. The presenting. So we've gone through uh, the knowing, the reckoning, and now the presenting. The idea in scripture for this word presenting, it's also translated yielding. And that's because it's both. And it's hard to find an English word that says it. But I always like to use the semi that's pulling up to a warehouse. It's going deet, deet, deet. And so what you do as the warehouse owner is you must decide that you're going to accept that semi. And you're going to open up your doors to it. And that's presenting. You're presenting your warehouse to him, saying, come on, come on, this way, this way, yeah, another foot back. And now there's another dimension to it, which is yielding, because there's all sorts of cargo on that uh, semi, and guess what? He's saying, I need to bring that in. We're like, we yield to everything that is in that semi coming into our life. That's the word that Paul uses, presenting, yielding. So present and yield yourselves unto God. This is part of believing. So if you're going to believe, you need to know, then you need to reckon, then you need to present. So, but yield and present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have yielded your members... Servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so, now yield and present your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. The human body is a fascinating illustration of this. You are a peanut-devouring machine. You You are built to devour peanuts. The same way you're built to devour grace. Actually, you are designed by God very purposely to take in grace. It's there. And you're like, oh, I I have no ability to access this. I can do no work. Actually, you're built to do a certain work. It's called the work of faith. You are. You've been designed by God for it. It's fascinating. Like this hand, this arm, this shoulder is all part of it. And if you wanted to reach out, you technically could. Isn't that amazing? You're actually designed to reach out and to grab peanuts and then to crack them and to pull one out. And you have a mouth. But your mouth needs to be in agreement, just like your hand and your grip does. And it needs to bring it to the mouth. 
And your mouth needs to open and allow it. And then your jaw needs to agree. Your teeth need to chew. And then it needs to swallow. All of your body needs to be in agreement with this flow, this agreement. It's known as believing. And then your stomach needs to receive. It needs to accept all that has come in. And it needs to say, this is good. Even though at times it might not feel good. It needs to receive it. It needs to extract all the nutrients out of it. It's just built for it. You are built to believe. You have been given all of the qualifications to respond to God. You're not helpless sitting here. You're helpless to bring about peanuts, but you're not helpless to respond to God. He has given you the grace. He's even drawn you to the peanut bowl. You want what's in it. Why? Because he wants you. You see, it's grace that has even drawn you to this point. It's grace that's even going to convince you that you need those peanuts. And when you reach out, it's probably God even pushing your elbow. It's probably God even clamping down your hand. But you have the hand. You have the arm. You have the shoulder. You have the mouth. Your job is to open them. Yield and present. That's the challenge in Scripture. Paul says, present, yield. Do not yield to cotton mouth again, but yield your hand to the purpose of gripping peanuts, cracking them open and popping them into your mouth. Yield your mouth to the purpose of chewing peanuts. Yield your throat to the purpose of swallowing them and yield your digestive tract to the purpose of gaining all the protein richness out of them. This is the Christian life. Yield to grace. Yield to the Holy Spirit. Let him have you. He needs to come in. He needs to transform you. It's called grace. Everything that was purchased at the cross is flowing out of his side. Remember the spear that went into the side and out came, out came blood and water. Jesus says, those who believe on me out of their innermost will flow rivers of living water. That's the Holy Spirit. It's blood water. Life in the Hebrew is blood. And this is blood water. It's the life of Jesus known as the Holy Spirit. He's the fiery stream that issues forth from the throne. He's the river of life. It's the Holy Spirit. And that's even what he says in that very passage in John. That river is the Holy Spirit. He gives it to us and it flows out from us. So now the exerting. So say you have a hand. Do you know that you must decide with this hand to grip? There's an exerting. I oftentimes refer to it as the growl. Do it. Don't wait to be pushed. You know you need it. You know you want it. Believe. Take it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. It's an exertion. Let not sin reign. You have all the capacity to say no to it now. So say no to it. Do not let it reign. Do not plant uh, cotton anymore. Do not turn back to an old master. Why that which has begun in the flesh, which has begun in the spirit, would you go back to the flesh? Now that you've tasted peanuts, why would you go back to cotton? Grab the peanut. Do it. Crack the peanut open. Do it. Throw those little peanut gems into your mouth. Do it. Chew the peanut gems. Do it. Swallow the peanuts. Do it. Digest the peanuts. Do it. That's what a gospel tear does. It says believe. And we're always feeling so helpless. I don't know. I can't believe. Well, you're partially right without God's help. But you want it, don't you? You see the peanut bowl, don't you? You want to be in that living room eating from that bowl. I do. Why? It's because God wanted you first. You see, God gave that bowl to you. Look at the side of it. It has your name engraved on it. As if it was just for you out of all the universe. He picked you. It's strange. Every one of us looks at the bowl and like, hey, my name's on it. Like Someone over here is like, no, it's my name. We're both looking at the same bowl, but we see that it's for us. But then if we look at it closely, we see everyone else's name in here too. We're like, yeah, it is true. 
Your name is on there. There's a whole bunch of other people that are na- their names are on here too that need to be coming in here and participating in this eating of grace. The obeying. But thanks be to God, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. You used to plant cotton. But when George Washington Carver came along and showed you the peanut, and he said, there's a better way, guys. The boll weevil's going to get you. It's going to destroy the cotton industry. If you don't get out now, you're in trouble. Judgment is coming. King Cotton has served too long in your life. But God has made a way. And so, when you obey, you are no longer a servant of cotton. The peanut power is yours. Walk forward now in confidence, knowing that you have all the necessary protein strength for the battles that lie just up ahead. The bowl of peanuts. Number one, it is bottomless and sufficient. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. As Charles Spurgeon says, that's the equivalent of a little fish coming to God and saying, God... Uh, I'm really concerned because I'm in this, this ocean, but I, I, I'm concerned that there won't be enough water for me to swim in. And, the, and God says to the fishy, oh, dear little fishy, my ocean water is sufficient for you. And that's Spurgeon's likeness to the fact that God's grace is sufficient for us. God, I, I'm afraid I'm going to run out of peanuts. Oh, little fishy. Oh, oh, little Christian. Oh, little peanut farmer's son or daughter. The peanuts will never run out. And it's also perfectly suited to meeting our every need. Peanuts, they're just designed to meet our need. It's amazing. If you need food, milk, paper, soap, cosmetics, dyes, paints, plastics, gasoline, nitroglycerin, rubbing oil, emulsions for bronchitis, quinine, laxatives, hand lotion, face cream, shampoo, shaving cream, insecticide, rubber, linoleum, insulating boards, and a hundred more things beside, you've got it all in the peanut. I know grace doesn't look that attractive on the outside. Just a peanut. People make fun of it all the time. You're actually going to that? I'm going to that. Everything you could ever possibly need for any dimension of life. Household needs, family needs, societal problems. You got it. It's in a bowl. On the coffee table. In Christ. It's bottomless. It's sufficient. And everything you could possibly need to address in your life. God, I need some rubber. Ah, you got some peanuts. Who would have ever dreamt that Peanuts could solve my rubber problem over here. I mean, that's amazing. Ran out of fuel in my car. Peanuts! Who would have ever thought that peanuts and gasoline could be connected? It's extraordinary. We have only just begun to see the possibilities of the peanut bowl. Listen to this quote in 1929. So all of these inventions are coming out, and this is what was said in 1929. At present, not a great deal has been done to utilize Dr. Carver's discoveries commercially. He says that he is merely scratching the surface of scientific investigations of the possibilities of the peanut and other southern products. Just scratching the surface. Isn't that a great statement of how we are as Christians? We're just scratching the surface of what God has supplied for us. Little do we know how vast and beyond measure it is. Beyond what we can ask or think God has done, and he's already done it, it's available to us. Most of us are just using it for peanut butter. As far as we're concerned, at least we're not going to hell. We got one recipe, but God has given us all the grace that we need for every dimension of our life, not just for peanut butter. No matter your need, God's solution has already been given, no matter what it is. 
You have the classic ones of the sexual deviancies and the strongholds of lust and fear, pride and gluttony. We have the biggies, but then we have life to live. We have the attitude with which we respond to those we love. We have the mental thought patterns. When a thought comes, do we give way to it? Do we allow it in? Everything you need. How about your financial sides of life? The challenges that we face in an unstable economy. Did you know that everything you need has been made available to you through the cross of Jesus Christ? Everything. No matter what situation you're in, God has supplied you the solution, and it's already there. However, you must believe. You must actually take this thing known as you and respond to the thing known as God, to his truth. He's promised. Do you believe his promise? Tie your ropes into Jesus Christ. Let him hold you, and you will find that everything you need has been supplied. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all there. His divine power has worked it for us. What's your position? It's available to you. Everything you need for life and godliness. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.